right, so today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 20, verse 1 to 16, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you guys for moving forward. Uh, it's, it's a smaller crowd. Strange to be able to preach so far. Appreciate it. I know it takes a lot. Um, just a couple things, as Hannah mentioned. A couple announcements more. We tricked you guys. We have three, and I have two more. It's easier for you guys to digest. One announcement is, okay, my wife, kids director, she did an excellent announcement last week, uh, wanting to see if there could be more volunteers amongst parents or, or non-parents. If you're interested, please, please, this is... I take stress home. We need more volunteers. Well, we have a lot of kids, uh, you know, compared to the number of uh, our, our adult congregation. We need everyone. So it takes a whole village to raise children. So if you're interested, it doesn't have to be every week. It could be once a month, twice a month, consistently. We, we were looking for some people that, are people that are consistent, can be trained. My wife will train you. She's wonderful. I married her. I could vouch for her. Uh, so please, that's her email address. Let's do that. Uh, and then second announcement is right after service, um, we basically do finance report twice a year as a church. Uh, one time we do it at the end of the year in December, or I'm sorry, at, at the, at, uh, we do the year-end stewardship report around February, March for the previous year to kind of show you guys our offering numbers and what, how the money is being used. All those things are going to be transparent. So today, we're going to do the mid-year stewardship report right after service. We don't want to board everyone with the information, but this is important. So if you're a member, if you're interested, everyone's welcome. We'll do a three-minute break between end of service and before it begins that will, that will be given by our elder Evan today right after service. So those are two announcements. It'll be no longer than 15 minutes. All right? Awesome. Um, all right, Matthew 20. If you have your Bibles, Matthew 20. 
you know, we're, we're, we're looking at our, I think this is our number five, parable number five. I didn't plan uh, this series before, but this is sort of where the Lord has led us, and this is the final parable. Uh, and next week, we're going to be jumping into book of Colossians, as it was mentioned today as well. So we're going to look at the final parable today for this year. Uh, and Matthew 20, the parable, if you grew up in the church, you may have read it and like, oh, this is an interesting parable. The parable known to us as the parable of the workers, or the laborers in the vineyard. And one of the most important aspects of understanding any of Jesus' parables is really to look at its context. Some parables, like Matthew 13, Jesus is teaching the crowd one after another parable, right? But a parable like this one actually comes uh, at a special occasion, right? That something has happened and Jesus wants his followers, his disciples, or people to truly understand what he's saying. So it's very important for, for a parable like this to understand what's the occasion? Why is Jesus talking about this random vineyard and the owner and the people all getting paid? This, this is like some communist. No, it's not. It's actually this important reason why Jesus is telling this story. So in, in this context, Matthew 20, moments before G Jesus spoke on this parable, a young rich man shows up at Jesus' door and wants to talk to Jesus. And this young rich ruler or young rich man, he's not a small talker. He just goes to Jesus and says, Teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? That's the question in Matthew 19, moments before this parable. And in verse 21, Jesus says, have you done this? Have you done that? He says, yeah, I've done this. I've done that. I follow the law. So Jesus says, then give away everything you have. Sell it. Give it to the poor and join the team. Follow me. And verse 22, when the young rich man heard Jesus' challenge to sell everything, to follow him, he walked away greatly sad. That's what Matthew says. Because at the end, he loved his wealth more. So at that moment, Peter's watching this. Peter and his disciples are watching this interaction with this young rich man and Jesus. And Peter gets up at this very important moment and reminds Jesus in verse 27 of Matthew 19 that even though this young rich ruler couldn't follow Jesus, I left everything. We left everything to follow you, Jesus. Peter is kind of showboating here. Like Peter is, wants to remind Jesus, yeah, that, that guy didn't do it, but Jesus, we did it. And he follows up that statement with this question. What then will there be for us, Jesus? Since we left everything to follow you, what will we get in the end? And verse 29, Jesus reassures Peter and the disciples saying, well, anyone who has sacrificed their possession, their relationships, for the sake of his name, they will be rewarded, that he will remember them. Yet Jesus' response to Peter doesn't just end with those words. Perhaps knowing what might have been lurking in the hearts of Peter and his disciples, Jesus teaches them this very parable we find in Matthew 20. That's the occasion. So now you understand why this parable is here. Again, this particular parable of Matthew 20 is not taught to a large crowd. Jesus is not standing in front of a boat teaching thousands of people. No, it's a response largely to Peter's and his disciples' question. We left everything to follow. What will be there for us? So now let's 
look at the parable and, and see how Jesus responds to that question. And Jesus taught in parables often. And in this parable, he has harvest imagery in mind. And he says, during which a farmer will need to hire workers, right? Any farmer knows the harvest season, true stock season is the, is the busiest because you need a lot of workers to be able to gather all your harvest. So this is a very common thing where a, a farmer or a landowner go out and hire people for, for work. And there was a master who needed workers in, in his vineyard for that day. So he went out early, probably 6 a.m., very early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Verse 2, it was common for the workers to gather in somewhere in the city center. Everyone grew, anyone grew up in, in America? I grew up in America. We, uh, in Virginia, if you need construction workers, you go to 7-Eleven. I've done some paint, paint jobs with my uncle. We'll go to 7-Eleven and pick up workers. People, people need day jobs, right? Similar thing, people would gather in the city, people that needed work, that didn't have land, would gather in the city waiting with their buddies, looking for some work. So that they could provide for their families. So early in the morning, 6 a.m., there was workers. So the owner hired them, promising them a denarius for a full day's work. A denarius for a day's work was considered generous for that day. This, so the owner is already very generous. This is not standard pay, but this is more than the standard pay. And, and, and we should note that the payment was agreed upon. Right? Jesus says clearly... There was an agreement on the payment. The Greek word is symphoneo, which literally means to agree together. It wasn't like the owner said, I'm going to pay you 50 bucks, take it or leave it. There was a negotiation. And the workers said, you know what? For, for a full day's work, we'll work for you. A generous, generous pay. And this will become, this agreement will become a greater importance as the parable unfolds. Verses 3 and 4. A few hours later, three hours later, around 9 a.m., the owner goes out again and sees people without work. These workers want to work, right? If we look at the text, they do want to work, but they have failed to find any kind of job. And their families may go hungry that evening if they do not find any work. Notice the reason for the farmer that's doing the hiring is not because the owner is in need. Jesus, says, Jesus mentions nothing about the, the landowner needing more workers. It simply says he went out and he happened to see people without work. So he invites them to his field. Verse 4, they're simply told that they will be paid what is fair. So there's no negotiation here. There is no one denarius promise. Jesus says, I'm going to come work in my field for the rest of the day. I'm going to pay you what is fair. The literal word is what is righteous. Even though no one, right, and, and the workers were, agreed to work, trusting that the owner would pay them a fair wage, even though no one would have expected to receive a full wage because it's already 3, three past 6 a.m., the expectation would have been a fractional percentage of day's wage. But they have a trust in the master, in the owner, that he'll be fair in his payment. Perhaps he had a good reputation in the city. Verses 5 to 7, the owner goes out again, does the same thing at noon. The same thing at 3 o'clock and one final time at 5 p.m. So if 
work, work finishes at 6 o'clock. The owner decides even till the end, 5 p.m. goes out looking for more workers. Right? You see, he sees people without work every time he goes out, even at 5 o'clock. And at 5 o'clock, people that were without work perhaps were burdened by the reality that their family might go hungry that night because they couldn't work. They were waiting there all day, couldn't find any work. But verse 6, to everyone's surprise, everyone listening to the story knows it's a bad time to hire at 5 o'clock. It's not efficient. It's not beneficial. At 5 o'clock, how much work can they do? Yet to everyone's surprise, the landowner invites not only at 3 o'clock, but also at 5 o'clock, hour before shop closes, still invites, even for just an hour. Again, no one in those days would have hired someone for just an hour. Usually, they need to be a minimum of three hours were required. Yet, to everyone's surprise, the owner chooses to hire these workers, regardless of how efficient it may be to bring more workers at that time. Verse 7, we're just walking through the parable. The, the, the words of those who are standing without work to the final at 5 o'clock, so, so, so the landowner asks, why, why are you guys just standing here without work? And, and the words, the response of those that were at there at 5 o'clock basically says, no one looked out for us. You see, work in the ancient world symbolized purpose, calling, direction. And, and really, the interaction between the landowner and, a, and, a, and the workers at 5 o'clock basically says, no one gave us direction, no one gave us purpose. Yet in this kingdom, because Jesus begins this parable with exactly the same with other parables in the book of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is like, and this kingdom, no one is overlooked. No one is disqualified. No one is denied. So verse 8, finally sun goes down. It's around 6 o'clock. When the day's work is done, the owner tells his foreman, the manager of his household, to bring all the workers and settle accounts to pay these workers. Usually the ones who came early would have been paid out first. That was the custom. That was what was normal. People that came early were paid out first. But what's interesting in this story is that it's the ones that came at the end that are at the front of the line. And verse 9 to 10, as these, these workers were standing in a line, the foreman was paying out each worker, right? And everyone, excluding the latest group, the, the group that came at 5 p.m., became greatly angry. That's what Jesus says. They were upset. Because even the ones that came at 5 p.m. received the same amount of one denarius, right? So, so this, is, this is interesting, Right, these workers, they're in line, and the last ones are getting paid out, and they see them getting paid one denarius, and the ones that came earlier are thinking, man, if they got paid one denarius, I might get four. I might get six because I worked a lot longer. Because the first group of workers worked about 12 times longer than the ones that just came. So it's not hard to imagine they would be upset. I mean, you go to work, right? And say your boss hires some rookie out of college. You have 15 years of experience. You have the certification. You have you have, you know, gone through war with your boss and you have, you have done your job and, and you find out the rookie or this new person is on the same compensation level. I mean, you would be upset. 
I mean, I'll be upset if like an intern pastor came and it was like, oh, we're getting same, same, same composition. I'd be like, no, that's not happening, right? So we can understand the frustration. Yet the owner, if, if you really read the story and understood the story, we know the owner has not broken any promises here. That's what's important, right? The worker's grumbling has nothing to do with the owner's failure to keep his promise, to pay them the agreed amount. That was agreed, one denarius, for all day's work. So it's important for us to know that their anger, the, 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 the frustration of the early workers, they're not angry because, not because the owner has cheated them. Rather, it's because the owner has chosen to be more generous with those who came later than them. In verse 13, owner explains this to them, right? So they're angry. They're like, you didn't pay. You are not fair. And, and the owner looks at these grumbling workers, his employees, and says, friends, verse 15, don't I have the right to do what I want with, with my own money? Are you jealous? Are you envious? Because I am being generous with my money. And then Jesus wraps up this whole parable with a rather familiar phrase in the Gospel of Matthew. So the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And those who grew up in the church are like, heck no, I don't like this parable. I really don't like this parable. This is Jesus' response to Peter. And, and, and Jesus really wants Peter to know, don't think my kingdom works like any other kingdom. So I want to bring our attention to two things and, and we'll wrap up. First thing is the dangers that we see, right? The dangers of spiritual pride. Second thing is the solution to that very spiritual pride. First, Spiritually proud. The grumblings of the early workers in the parable really reveal or reflect many of the way we approach God, especially if you grew up in the church. It, it, it's, it's a very, I could relate to their complaint. I could relate to their grumbling, right? Remember the story of Jonah. Jonah is a prophet of God, is sent to preach to his enemy nation, an evil people of Nineveh. And after running, getting caught up in a whale and long story, he reluctantly eventually goes to Nineveh and preaches a very uninspiring, shortest sermon. Repent, right? Repent. Hoping that God will not relent his anger towards the Ninevites. Surprise, surprise. God, the people fast, repent, cattle's repent too. I don't know what, is that, what that is about. Um, and God relents. And at the end of that story, it's really interesting. Jonah is standing outside the city. There's a repentance. He's a prophet. There's a revival. He should be happy, but he is not. He stands outside the city. And he's praying and hoping that God will change his mind and bring judgment. The story comes to an end. Jonah grumbling like the people in our story about God's generosity, God's willingness to forgive people. And that's really what we see. Peter, Peter standing there. Oh, I'm not like that 
religious. I'm not like that young rich ruler. I'm different. I've left everything to follow you. And Peter wants to make sure him and his 11 friends, Jesus knows that they were the first ones that got there. Jesus wants them to know they're the first one to leave everything to follow him. And maybe Peter wants Jesus to know there is some type of expectation. And for those of us that grew up in the church, perhaps along our journey with Jesus, along with our our faith journey, somewhere along the way, we also have developed a sense of entitlement. Can I say that? Entitlement towards God. Like the older older brother in the story of Luke 15. Right? A famous story about the prodigal son and, there, and the prodigal son has an older brother. And, and so when, the, when, the, when his younger brother goes away, wastes the family money on partying and girls and all these things, he comes back. And the father throws this amazing party, kills a fattened calf, give him the ring, give him the shoes and do the whole thing. The older son shows up in the story. And the older son returns home to, to, to smell barbecue, to hear music, and he's wondering, is, is the father throwing the party for me? Just to realize it's for his younger son who has left him and, and, and really dishonored the family. And this is the older son's response. He gets really angry, not only at the younger brother, but at the father. And he says, I have never disobeyed you. Father, I've always stayed home. I've always done the right thing. You told me to go clean the house. I cleaned the house. You told me to clean the farm. I cleaned the farm. You told me to go get good grades. I got good grades. All these years, I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet, Father, you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I think this is, if, we're, if we could be a little honest, and I'll be a little honest, I've, I have my unmet expectations, and I have complained to God plenty. And I still complain to God daily about things I feel like I deserve, things I feel like God should come through. And that's the nature of human heart, right? And, and, and really, at the end of it, if you dig deep into the words of older brother or these early workers, or even Peter, right? It's the, it's the desire to really be the master of their own lives, to demand really God to comply to how they see life. Forgetting that God doesn't owe us anything, right? That everything He has given us, they're gifts, and, and this kind of pride, this kind of entitlement, it's like cancer, right? Pride often goes undetect- undetected until it really begins to mess with just things in our lives. Eventually, pride will overtake every aspect of a person's life. Pride not only is devastating, right? It's not only devastating in our horizontal relationships, our marriage our relationship with our children, our co-workers. It also messes with our vertical relationship, our relationship with God, the way we see God. And this is exactly what's happened to the workers, right? You see, the workers in verse 12 of Matthew 20, they're not only upset at the late workers. Really, their anger is towards the landowner, 
It's really about what the landowner chose to do. It's, it's very little to do. It involves delayed workers, but it's really about their problem with, with the landowner. In verse 12, he says, they say, you don't understand how much we've done for you, how much we've endured the sun and worked. And if you pay attention, there is no reverence in this conversation for the owner. Notice there's no proper title that's being used here. They simply say, you, you didn't pay us enough. You didn't do it. You're not generous. Yet the owner, strangely, responds by referring to them as what? Friends. Men of this statue and wealth. Men of property owner and, and, and a farm did not call employees friends. Yet we see a different type of landowner who is willing to engage with their complaint and say, well, friends, you've agreed and I have paid you the agreed amount. Don't I have a right to be generous with my own money? So, so when we read this, it, it's not an angry voice. The owner is responding. The owner is engaging. Just like the father in the story of the prodigal son. The father comes out and says, son, everything I have is yours. Yes, but you are not my slave. You are my son. You own everything. The younger son has taken his money, squandered it, so now everything in this house is actually yours. There's an engagement. Jesus is describing a type of owner that is unlike any other owners. To the anger and the complaints, the owner is patient. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't fire back at them. He doesn't say, give me back my money. He simply explains, again, you've agreed and I paid you out. Pride, right? And we know proud people, right? At work, maybe at home, maybe we have proud parents, Proud people have a hard time listening to other people. We know this. We all have had encounters with proud people. They have a hard time letting others speak into their lives. You, you sit down with somebody who's very proud, you're not getting one word in. It's always, you're just listening. They're just talking the whole time. You're like, okay. In fact, I do, I do not give advice to proud people because I know I'm just wasting my words. It's like, okay, I, I'm good, man. We're cool. And they have a hard time submitting to anyone, especially, especially um, anyone but themselves. And that's often true of their relationship with God. Again, Jonah, what was Jonah's problem? If you boil down Jonah's problem with God, for him, his sense of justice, what God should have done with these evil people, what is good and what isn't, superseded God's perspective, God's view of life. And again, there's a little bit of Jonah in each of us. Maybe not as honest, because I think Jonah's really honest. Maybe not as blatant. But we really don't like this idea of submission. We're not a culture of submission or surrendering. Isaiah 55, 8, 9. God is speaking to Israel. Right? God wants Israel to return. God wants Israel to finally get that I am a good God. I am, I am a good provider that they can trust Him. And, and, and he, says, he says these words. Isaiah, tell my people that my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. For the 
heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that makes sense. If, if He is God, that makes sense. That our thoughts will not be like God. Our, 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 our idea, our understanding, our perspective will be limited to God's. You know, a few weeks ago, through the parable of the hidden treasure, we talked about joy. And, 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 and as we're talking about joy, I said, joy for Christians is not some icing on the cake, but it is actually the main thing that we ought to pursue joy. But, but when you think about living out of joy and contentment, that's only possible when we learn to trust God, when we learn to submit our plans, our vision, our purpose, our ideas onto God's. Like without contentment, without willingness to submit to God, submit to the, this truth in Isaiah, to say, yeah, God, your thoughts, even though what I want is this, God, I, I trust you. My ways, God, I want to go this way, but I trust you. And I, I, I genuinely believe as heavens are higher than the earth, that my ways are limited. I, my thoughts there's so, much, there's so much greater perspective. And that's how we begin to live joyfully as Christians. It's not having more stuff. It's not about leveling up. It's really about letting go and surrendering. Amen? Let's spend a few minutes talking about jealousy because I really think when you boil down this parable, it's really about jealousy. Because if you really dig into the grumblings of these early workers, at the heart of it is that they are breaking the 10th commandment. Thou shall not covet. Right? It's the, it's the 10th commandment that, 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 that is at the heart of this parable. You see, these workers, they're not upset because the owner has not kept his part of the bargain. No, owner has kept his promise. One denarius for a full day's work. But they're upset because... The landowner is giving more money to the people they don't think deserve it. See, coveting is more than thinking it'd be great to have a nicer car. It'd be great to have a nicer house. It'd be great to have a nicer family. Coveting longs from someone else's stuff to be ours. Coveting longs for someone else's stuff to be ours. Right? These, these workers, they want it the other workers be paid less so that they can be paid more, right? Coveting says, I want not just a nicer car, I want their car. I want their family. I want their spouse. Anyone? Too honest? I'm sorry. Okay, take it back. Coveting longs for, for someone else's stuff to be ours. In fact, you know, Ten Commandments, there's an order to it. There's a reason why they're laid out this way. It, it, the, 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 the call to not covet is the final commitment out of the ten for a very important reason. Right? It's the most fitting summary of the whole law. All of the nine things fit into the tenth one. Because it's impossible for you and I to covet our neighbor's things and love the Lord our God, with all of our heart, all of our soul and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. It's really hard to 
fulfill all of the commitments when we covet. In fact, Colossians 3, I think we'll, we're going to be in the book of Colossians next week. Paul says our covetousness, our covetousness is a form of idolatry. Like making a God out of our desires. We say things like we cannot live without it. We cannot live without that person. We cannot live, live without that place or possession. And we see this everywhere, don't we? Right? Jealousy is just a major part of human life. I'll have, we'll have guests. I'll say uh, my, my girl's friends, they come over. Uh, or we're, we were on vacation with uh, Lois's sister last week for Chusog. They were visiting from Australia. Uh, so we'll get cups. And there's Ikea cups, pink, yellow, blue. And, uh, you know, my daughters, I know their favorite colors. At least I think I do, right? I give them their cup. They have their favorite color cup. But then as soon as their cousin wants the blue cup, she didn't even want blue cup. It's like, oh, I want the blue cup. And it becomes just like a chaos. You know, they got three kids, I got two. It's just like, I'm like, and I get so upset. I'm like, dude, you love pink. Just take the pink cup. It's just cup. It's just water, okay? You don't, you don't even drink water. Why do you need a cup, right? Um, and I, I just, it drives me crazy, right? Because it's so easy for us to see that there's this jealousy. And, and as soon as one kid wants to jump on something and everybody wants to do it, I mean, it's like, ah. Yet it's so easy for us to see it in other people. To see it with our boss or our coworkers, with our friends, with our spouse. But it's really hard for us to see it within ourselves. We're really good at not catching it for, for our own. And, 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 you know, every time we covet something, you know what it re really reveals? Here's, here's the thing about jealousy and coveting something. Every time we covet something, maybe you did it this morning, maybe you did it yesterday, it reveals that we are discontent with what we have. That we are discontent with what God has given. If, you, if you're a Christian, maybe, maybe you're not, maybe you're on this journey, but if you think you're a Christian and you, 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 you confess to be a Christian, we are discontent with what God has given us. And, and really, that discontentment is an expression of how much more we think God still owes us. Let me repeat myself. Right? When we covet something, it shows that we are discontented with what God has given us. And that discontentment, really, another level, shows us we really truly are entitlement. We really think God should give us something better, a better car, a better spouse, a better, better kid, a better career, a better opportunity, a better church, a better you fill in the blank. This idea of God, you owe me. Friends, I, I won't mince my words. Yeah, I'll just tell you, God loves you. You believe that, right? God loves you. Yeah, you believe that. The cross, Jesus, God loves you. If you believe Jesus came, no other expression of love. And he really, really loves you. He cares deeply for you. But, here's but, he does not owe you. He does not owe me. God is free to choose, free to give, free to take away anything he chooses to. And I know people have a problem with it. How can good God make children suffer? How can good God allow suffering in the life? Yeah, 
I get that. I understand that. And, and many people don't want to choose to follow Jesus or don't want to even come to church because of that reality. They see so much suffering and say, how can God allow that? My, my, my argument is, how can, how can we make God choose? How can we assume that we can actually decide what, what is good for God and what, who God should be? Because when we take away God's freedom to choose to give, to take away things from our lives, we are assuming the role of God. He's no longer God. He's just a nice butler, nice genie, nice somebody who will come around and do things for you, but he's not God. We put God into that box. He does not owe you. He does not owe me. We owe him. Back to the ordering of the Ten Commandments. Thou shall not covet is the, and I believe it's the final commandment because you see, obeying the first nine commandments seem doable, at least externally. Like, seems like, okay, don't kill people. I, could, I think I could do that if I don't drive in Seoul, Korea. Don't sleep around. I think I could do that. Don't lie under oath. I can do that. Yet just when we might be tempted to check off one commandments after, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, we land on this tenth and final commandment. Thou shalt not covet. And we quickly realize the tenth one really touches on the internal motivation of our hearts. And therefore no one can truly Keep the law. The law is good. Jesus did not say the law is bad. The law is good. It is wonderful, but we cannot be saved by the law because of human condition. And the tenth and final commitment really proves that. Then, then, then what's the point? Why are we here? Why are you speaking about Sangmin? The question is, how can we truly pursue a life of humility? How can we truly pursue a life of surrender, a life of joy and contentment? Because obviously, according to the law, we cannot. Especially if we recognize that we cannot attain them on our own. How do we do that? Matthew 20, through the parable that Jesus opens up for us, offers someone who can. Jesus presents to us a wonderful picture of a landowner that's unlike any other landowner. And he is representing the nature of God himself, right? The, the landowner who represents God in the parable is nothing like any other earthly landowners. He is ever so patient. He is utterly generous to everyone. He continues to seek those who are without work. He doesn't hire to fulfill his needs, but to provide for the workers. And he calls his workers friends. Friends. Through the landowner's action, we see God who continues to go after those who are without purpose and direction and calling. He invites them, right? He sees these people without work. No one would hire them. No one would invite them. And he says, you come and work in my field. You come to my field and, and you work for me. And through the landowner, we see God who welcomes all people. His inv invitation is not based on his own needs. It's not based on their ability 
or their inability, but it's based on for their sake. And through the landowner, we see God, who is generous to all people. One who, the one who not only kept his promise, but, but even, even more for people that are in need, even more generous. So friends, the only solution, or, or one of the better solutions against our covetousness is really realizing and seeing the Father. That's, that was Jesus' remedy for Peter. He said, let me show you the landowner, Peter. You're worried about not getting more money, not getting your due. Well, look at the Father. Look at the landowner. Look how generous he is. Because why do we covet? Think, think for a moment. I'll give you, I'll give you like five seconds. Why, why do we covet that car, that person, that life? We covet because we assume only if we can get that person's house, only if we could get that person's possession or portfolio, only if we could get that house or whatever you've, you've coveted, we assume we'll finally be revered. People will finally respect us. We'll finally be embraced and accepted. When I drive around and then there is that sign of peace sign in my car, people will respect me. People won't cut me off. And the things we covet continue to change, right? Like that's, that's life. The things we covet continue to change as we realize we need more. We need bigger, better, more shinier things. All of us remember first time we got our favorite toy or, or, or whatever and we were so excited and we couldn't wait. We begged our, our, our mom and dad and they finally got us and it, it took no, no more than probably a week before you're like, I need another toy and another G.I. Joe and another car and another whatever. And we know this. We know this human nature how we, we want something and we convince ourselves and as soon as we get it, we're like, oh, I need the next thing. That's true of materials. That's true of relationships. Friends, true contentment is only possible when we realize it's not what we need, but it's who. And the gospel only speaks of a greater landowner who's willingly, who willingly came into our world as one of us. Right? He saw our brokenness, even the most horrific things that no one else knows, but we know He knows. Yet He still chose to come, chose to take on our shame, our sin, our debt, and made a payment with His own life. By His blood, we have been healed. By His rejection, Him being rejected, we are received. By His death, we are delivered. But here's the major difference between the worker and us when it comes to the gospel and relationship with God. And, and, and this is important. The workers in the field in the story had to earn their wage, and they did. They, some of them worked hours, some of them worked three hours, some of them worked 12 hours. They, they earned their wage. They had to get their work sweat under the sun and earn their wage. 
Yet the gospel tells us we did not earn our wage. We did not do anything to merit what we have received. So it doesn't matter what you have done, what you have not done, how you have lived, how you are living. doesn't matter because it's not up to us. It's not us earning our way to heaven, earning our keys to eternal life. The key has been given. And it's a free gift. And if we truly understood that, and it's hard, I think cognitively, yes, but depth of that reality of what Christ did and that we didn't do anything to earn it, that's hard. Because I think our human default mode is to try to earn things. Like my daughters try to earn my love. I'm like, I, I love you. You're, you're great. Look at you. You're so cute. It's not about what you can do. Yet we, we, we it's, it's hard. Because I think that's the default mode of human heart. So, you know, whenever you're tempted to covet someone else's stuff, whenever you're tempted to look down on someone else, I want to encourage you to remember, remind yourself of what you have received and what that gift means and how that ought to change and challenge the way we live and we think. Let's pray. Jesus, we are... Like Peter, we do something well and we say, Jesus, look at us. What are we going to get? And I think it's, it's our confession, Lord. We, we, we have entitlement issues. We have, we have things that we expect, things that we don't even realize. So, so we pray, Holy Spirit, you would reveal to us the generosity of God the Father again and again to read this story and, and not focus at all. Was that fair? Was that, was that good? What if I was that late work or early worker? No, it's about the father. It's about the, the owner, right? We're, we're missing the point by looking at all the other things. We look at the owner who is so generous from the very start, who has kept his part of the bargain, who has even hired not out of his own need but because he knows that we need him Lord reveal, reveal to us again awaken our senses if we grew up in the church and we've heard the gospel so many times it just doesn't sound fresh make it fresh Lord Father, we repent of our sense of entitlement. We repent of wanting to control and master and, and tell you how to, how to be God. What arrogance. Renew us today, Lord. Jesus, we pray.